If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Revolt Black News, presented by State Farm. Tonight on Revolt Black News Weekly. I didn't believe the young guy was telling me my daughter had been shot in the head. Black safety first, as gun violence continues to climb in our communities. We hear from families whose worlds were shattered. He had bruises on his face. I could see the gun wound. How do we end this epidemic? And what is the solution for peace? It is the right thing to do to fight for our children's future. Then, on the ground in Brunswick, Georgia. We don't want any more black pastors coming in here. Reverends Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, and other black religious leaders are causing a courtroom uproar to ensure justice for Ahmaud Arbery. Plus, one year since the deadly NSARS protest against police brutality, how are things different today in Nigeria? And then, I'm offering you a second chance. You gonna take it? Yeah, I'm Halle Berry's knockout punch. Why the Oscar winner is letting her fist fly and calling all the shots behind the camera. This has been my baby now for three years. I've been training for this. All that and much more as the Black News Revolution starts right now. Hey everybody, I'm Ebony K. Williams. Now we begin with a real family discussion about the steadily rising gun violence in our communities. Now in the past week, three people were killed and 16 wounded in Philadelphia. An eight-year-old boy was also shot and killed at his apartment complex in Atlanta. And in Chicago, over the weekend, four people were killed while another 17 were wounded in shootings in the Windy City. Now, because these tragedies continue to climb, we started a very candid and difficult conversation at the annual Revolt Summit last weekend. And tonight, we keep pressing for solutions as we center the discussion around the victims and their bereaved families. Black Safety First is tonight's top story. Shirley Crawley was on her way to the grocery store when she was shot and killed by a stray bullet. Top of the 20-year-old was found 18-year-old Ronnie Ware died from a shooting in Fraser at a graduation party. I got a phone call around 11 o'clock p.m. And the person on the phone, which was my son's girlfriend, said that Justin had been shot. I said, can you tell me what's going on? And he said, I don't have a lot of information for you, but I can let you know that your son didn't make it. It was a hard, frantic knock that came at my door on that day. And I didn't believe the young guy he was telling me my daughter had been shot in the head. Three young black men showed up with masks on and hoodies and assassinated my son. There were 40 bullets fired. 17 of them hit my son. The people laid in wait 
for him to get out of the car and they killed him. Next time I saw Josh was in a funeral home. His right eye was hanging out of his eye. He had bruises on his face. I could see the gun wound. Black Lives Matter. You killed your own. You killed your own this time. You killed my baby because she crossed the barrier and made a U-turn. You killed a child. She ain't do nothing to nobody. These are members of the community shooting each other. It really felt like a huge betrayal because I spend day and night out there trying to protect young black men. Headlines and statistics tell grim tales that grieving black families have long felt. We're protesting for months, uh, for weeks, saying black lives matter, black lives matter. And black lives matter, it seems like only when a police officer shoot a black person. What about all the black on black crime that's happening in the community? The controversial phrase black on black crime feels real in many communities. When a young person is killed by the police, you can shut down an expressway. That needs to happen with street violence. Marion Bailey is a victim's advocate. If we felt community for one another, it would be harder for me to just come up and do you harm. Reverend Annette Love organizes community vigils in Durham for bereaved families of murder victims. It's just far too many senseless murders here. I know from personal experience, when they tell you that the person that has murdered your loved one is about to be released before the trial, that hurts. And it creates real fear of running into a killer. I have four families who have relocated from Durham because they did not feel safe anymore. Miss Bailey's grandson was murdered. She feels his killers got off easy. Two people who put the murder in play were released um, in, in my mind with a hand slap. One of them got locked up for murder again. Grieving mom, Sherilyn Ingram, is frustrated by the lack of answers or suspects. Her son Joshua was killed by a stray bullet last July 4th in Atlanta. I was so distraught because I felt like Joshua's case was going to be a cold case. And it's like, oh, he's just another black boy that was in the wrong place at the right time. This should not have happened to Joshua. Delabia Cameron's daughter, Amira, was killed by a stray bullet in 2015. In 2019, her killers were convicted. Where... Other families are concerned with the court systems. You have to really get a thick skin. Tyrone Dennis, a retired Atlanta detective, says community cooperation is hard to get. We don't talk to the police. <laughs> it makes it difficult for my job because it prolongs an investigation that could have been open and shut if we got proper cooperation from the community. He founded Cops and Clippers to engage cops and citizens in conversations to bridge the trust gap. The no snitching culture uh, is the worst thing that affects our community because 
at the end of the day, we allow people to victimize over and over again. Snitching can be a death sentence. Satana DeBerry, district attorney of Durham County, North Carolina, is not fond of the term black on black crime. Black people are not more likely to commit crimes. So it is a myth that black on black crime is more violent. It's a small number of people in any community who are responsible for the most gun violence. But the havoc feels outsized and has caught the attention of President Biden. What do you tell the mothers, sisters, fathers, children, aunts of those that they've lost too soon due to this violent crime that this Biden administration is looking at differently than previous administrations to make sure that their families, that their loved ones get the justice that they deserve. The loss mm -hmm. is real. That's why we're trying to make sure that we curb uh, black on black violence or, or hate crimes or however you want to look at it. But the, at the end of the day, we have to reduce the number of people who have to bury loved ones too soon because of gun violence. And so that's where we start with the rogue gun dealers and, and flooding the streets with guns. We get it and we know how hard it is. And what does that mean for grieving families seeking justice? I just want them to be punished. There's not a day that I don't cry. I miss his hugs. We did receive justice, but it, it doesn't change what took place because it's consistently happening. Joining me to keep this important conversation going, retired NYPD detective, law enforcement analyst, Mark Claxton, community activist, Mary Hookst, and Sherilyn Ingram, who also lost her son, Josh, to gun violence. Welcome all of you to the show. Now, we discussed this at the Revolt Summit, which everyone can watch on the Revolt app, but we wanted to make sure that this conversation does not get derailed. We're gonna focus this on the families. Uh, and If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada -ba -ba -ba. At participating McDonald's. The victims here who really just want answers to solve the case and get justice for their loved ones. So we ask, what can the community do to support the families who have lost loved ones? I want to ask Ms. Ingram, um, who tragically lost your son, Josh, what resources do you most deeply need and do you find most helpful in these situations? What I deeply need is communication. Uh, we have large agencies, however, they're untouchable. It's like they're too busy to come down to my level and actually have a conversation with me to at least uh, let me know or hone me in as to what their processes are, what the next step is. To bring Brother Claxton into this, how can this thing be improved? That is a historical challenge. In order for there to be improved communication and a better relationship, you have to have committed parties. However, there's been some reluctance on the part of police prosecutor's offices, you know, to, to fully buy into that concept. And part of that, a large part of that is because uh, bonding and, and connecting to community organizations, individuals, neighborhoods goes against the very culture of policing 
uh, in criminal justice. Uh, too often, it is a very closed-in community that does not work well bonding and connecting outside of itself. So that's why you find sometimes this disconnect and there's a lack of communication and it comes across as being, you know, of lacking empathy and sympathy for victims. And it's a struggle that will continue because, like I said, you have to have two willing parties in order to really form and forge a good relationship. Two willing parties are necessary. Speak to the resources and 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 where the, the gaps might be. Yeah. Our social movements have survived because we have given our own monies. Our own people have given our own resources. And so we cannot um, underestimate nor write off what is possible when Black folks give to a thing we believe in. And so I think that has to be prioritized, that as Black people, our movements, our fights, our struggles cannot just be resourced by philanthropy. We all have to make a, a, a spiritual commitment to give, whether even if it's just a dollar, our time and our talent to, um, to, to support the efforts and the work that we need. And when we're connected to regional and national formations, there's no reason why that um, folks should be struggling to bury anybody. I mean, that's about as solutions focused as I've heard in this conversation broadly. When you are in need, when you have, 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 have suffered the losses, where do you immediately go? Uh, within the community to get the help uh, for you and your family. I didn't even know that one suspect was arrested. I heard it from a news reporter, not from the police department or anybody. Why should it be so hard for us as mothers? It's like, uh, okay, Miss Ingram, you know, we're so sorry, you know, but I, I keep listening to platform after platform, panelists after panelists, but at the end of the day, when you walk away, what, what are you going to do? What What's the plan? Because right. you're not telling me what the plan is. So I'm sitting over here again, a year and four months again, crying, thinking, you know, nothing's going to happen, you know, about Josh Case. Yeah. The conversation... I know it doesn't bring your loved ones back, but I can tell you, uh, as both an attorney and a journalist, the conversation does have value because people people got to know how y'all feel. They really do. They got to see the faces of Josh. Yeah, that's important, the humanization. And as Detective Claxton talked about, this is a historical issue in terms of these gaps between ADAs and law enforcement and updates and this, and we got to keep applying the pressure. You know, that's what I will offer everybody here today, and I'll hold myself accountable to that as well. Uh, with that, uh, Sister Ingram, Detective Claxton, and Sister Mary Hooks, I want to thank you all for the time and telling your stories and, and amplifying this conversation as, as we continue it. You know, of course, this is a follow-up to the Black Safety First panel that we started at, at the Revolt Summit. Programming note, the Revolt Summit is going to be simulcast on the Revolt Network and on our YouTube channel starting Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can see all of these conversations, including the one that, you know, focuses on Miss Ingram and the people in that audience on the Revolt app beginning on Monday. Y'all listen, coming up, the Revolt Radar goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with Halle Berry. But first, why the most recognizable reverends are now a focus at the trial of the three men who allegedly shot and killed Ahmaud Arbery. Y'all, we're going to break it all down when we continue. The idea that we're going to be serially bringing these people in to sit with the victim's family one after another, obviously, there's only so many pastors they can have. 
And if that, their pastor's Al Sharpton right now, that's fine, but then that's it. We don't want any more black pastors coming in here or other Jesse Jackson, whoever was in, was in here earlier this week, sitting with the victim's family, trying to influence a jury in this case. Welcome back to Revolt Black News Weekly. Now, in the second week of the murder trial of Ahmaud Arbery's alleged killers, what you heard was the defense voicing its concern about Reverend Al Sharpton's presence in the courtroom, before then expressing, quote, we don't want any more black pastors, for which he did later apologize. And then this week, Reverend Jesse Jackson's attendance in Brunswick was also challenged and then eventually sustained by the presiding judge. Days later, 100 black pastors gathered outside the courthouse. Now, we're aiming to take a deeper look into black faith leaders' impact on the courtroom. To discuss the power beyond the pulpit, we're bringing in tonight's guest, pastor and author Dr. Jamal Harrison Bryant, national civil rights attorney Justin A. Moore. Welcome all of you to the show. Now, Justin, I want to start with you. We know in this jury it's got 11 white folk and one black juror. Now, before we get into the topic at hand, uh, there's a lot of concern about this almost all-white jury reaching a fair and just verdict in the case. And I do want to reference this, Justin, with the fact that you and I have both tried enough cases to know that an all-white jury can convict and have convicted white defendants in the past. Uh, but what's your reaction? When I found out that the jury was nearly all-white, I did have some concern. Uh, but as you just stated, an all-white jury or a nearly all-white jury can judge the facts based on the merits and uh, look at an argument and decipher what's being racialized and what they should actually listen to. But honestly, I mean, looking at the fact that this defense attorney continuously tries to bring up race throughout the, uh, uh, the entire portion of this trial, I think he has an understanding of the zeitgeist of that courtroom and maybe he might be on to something. That's my fear. He wouldn't mm -hmm. continuously try to bring it up if he didn't think that it would be something that could uh, strike a chord with the jurors there. So that's my fear going forward. Now, this question is for you, uh, Dr. Bryant. We know that Reverend Sharpton sitting in that courtroom, that's not unique. His presence was also known in the overflow room <clears throat> for the trial of Derek Chauvin, due, of course, to COVID restrictions. But he was led into the courthouse with Eric Garner's family in 2014. So tell us why Reverend Sharpton is there, and what do you think the defense is feeling other than completely defensive of his mere presence? Reverend Sharpton has been with uh, Ahmad Aubrey's family through the entire journey. As a matter of fact, uh, they called him the morning after the murder. Uh, so through this entire odyssey, uh, he has held them by the hand and has affirmed them. If you listen uh, to uh, Attorney Gouge, you'll hear he didn't even realize Sharpton was in the courtroom that day. His remarks about black pastors is the following day. Uh, which I believe uh, he learned either from colleagues or from news, uh, because uh, Reverend Shopton was of no disruption when he came to the court, uh, made no statements, uh, was no distraction, uh, which is there simply as a pastoral presence. This is also for you, Dr. Bryant. Uh, the judge responded by saying that he only noticed Reverend Al Sharpton once, but uh, from the defense's perspective, even that one time can feel intimidating and, and impactful. Uh, do you think that that impact will be constructive, uh, or do you have a different point of view? Yeah, I, I think, again, it is uh, reaching. Uh, he was there with, again, let's not miss, the victim's family, uh, who is not on trial. This is not uh, the Ahmaud Aubrey trial. Uh, 
Uh, Ahmad is not on trial. Uh, he is there uh, to comfort uh, that family, which is the role of the faith community historically. Uh, if you can uh, imagine uh, how many times uh, something happens to uh, somebody in service uh, area, whether that's a policeman or fireman, the courts are stacked. Okay, so now I want to play a clip from gospel icon Kirk Franklin. Now, he recently spoke with Revolt uh, on an array of topics while we had him. We also asked about the faith leader involvement in the trial. Here's what Kirk Franklin had to say. If we, we as humans... Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In America, we should lean into the fact that um, that the defense uh, in itself is having a challenge with its representation of this being something that is justifiable. And so because of that, we should lean in even more. All of us, not just religious mm -hmm. leaders, every human being. We need white people out there leaning. We need white pastors. We need uh, uh, white priests. We, we, need, right. uh, we, we need the Muslim brothers. We... we we need everybody leaning in because this is a this is a human tragedy. This yeah. is an American tragedy. Now, how do you respond to his comments about this leaning into the American tragedy? Uh, I echo the sentiments of uh, Kirk Franklin uh, for our prayer vigil in support of Ahmaud Aubrey's family, uh, that we are coming from all different walks of faith, uh, Muslim, Christian, Jews, Protestants, uh, as a show of force with prayer, uh, believing that uh, prayer is the weapon of choice, not of intimidation, uh, but for affirmation that justice is still necessary. Uh, I think that's actually maybe where these uh, black reverends are are valuable, right? Um, they're they're right. they're pulling on the heartstrings and the compassion points of not just the jury but everybody watching this case. All right, real quick, going back now to the circumstances of an almost all-white jury, uh, where do you think, and this is for you, Justin, some of this trepidation uh, around the ability of primarily white jurors to convict white defendants, especially when it comes to a black uh, victim? Do, obviously, we, we know the story of Emmett Till, whose killers were all found not guilty by an all-white juror, but that was many, many years ago, back in 1955. Is it different now, Justin? I would hope so. Um, and I think this is going to be a case where we see if it is different now, to be quite honest. This is going to be one of those cases that we study for, you know, per in perpetuity, right? I mean, because uh, we have a long legacy of white juries not convicting white defendants for, you know, extrajudicial extra murders, for lynch mobs, things of that nature. So this is going to be a situation here that we have to pay close attention to. All right, Justin, I want to ask you this about the black church uh, and the black community. We know that neither of those things are a monolith. But when Reverend Al Sharpton presents himself into these high-profile cases, he's kind of injecting himself of sort in the narrative. Does that project a monolithic perception as it relates to where the culture is on this case? And if it does, do you think that's fair for him to do uh, because he has such a cultural presence, and yet he's never really been an elected official? Yeah, that's a great question. Um... I don't know if it presents a monolithic type of viewpoint when it comes to how we look at the black community, but I will say, you know, there's a legacy of black leaders going into courtrooms dating back to the beginning of the NAACP, where you would have these types of leaders 
being placed in a courtroom, letting a jury and also letting the players in the courtroom drama know that the eyes of the black community are watching them and making sure that even justice is being applied. So, I mean, I subscribe to that legacy. I think it's been um, fruitful for us in the past. Um, and obviously, Reverend Al Sharpton subscribes to that legacy as well. Um, so, I, you know, I would like to give him the grace to say that he's doing this in a very positive way and it's not self-serving. Mm -hmm. I don't mind Al Sharpton being there because he's always been there for us. Justin and Dr. Bryant, we want to thank you both for your time. We appreciate you. Now, up next, the cast of The Game checks in as they return for their 10th season. And 50 Cent is bringing Snoop's infamous 1994 murder trial to television. And Kelly Rowland speaks out about her son's police-themed birthday party. We've got all that and more in this week's Revolt Radar after this. Venus and Serena gonna shake up this world. I got a miles on me. Throw it to the sky. Yeah, that's it. There you go. All right, that's Will Smith taking the lead role playing Venus and Serena Williams' dad in the Netflix film King Richard. It starts streaming this week. Welcome back to Revolt Black News Weekly. I'm Ebony K. Williams. Now let's check out some other entertainment headlines. Guest correspondent Kennedy Rue McCullough joins us from the Hollywood of the South, also known as the ATL, with more. Hey, Kennedy. Hey there, Ebony. It was a who's who of Atlanta at the Revolt Summit Black Carpet. But first, Halle Berry's getting bruised and I'm pulling no punches on this week's Revolt Radar. How mentally exhausting was it to be in not just mental shape, um, but physical shape for this project as well? Yeah, it took a toll. You know, I worked harder physically than I've ever worked for, on anything in my whole life, uh, honestly, and I really pushed myself to my limits. But I also knew that I was determined to sort of defy age. And at 55, Hallie is doing something right joining the ranks of the women who've inspired and opened doors, something she talked about after her historic Oscar win for Monsters Ball in 2002. It's really not just about me. You know, it's about so many people that went before me that paved the way. When you talked about standing on these women's shoulders, um, and now you're at a place in your career where you're able to open doors for people as well. Can you talk about what this phase of your career means and what you're setting out to accomplish with these projects that you're doing? You know, I've arrived at a stage where I wanna just continue to do what I've always done. And that's just to keep taking risks, taking chances, do things that inspire me. And Hallie took a risk with this passion project. Barry stepped behind the camera and called the shots. This being your directorial debut, did you have any growing pains or any situations that you needed to adjust to that were different as opposed to being in front of the camera? Oh, the whole experience was different. You know, I had the whole weight of the whole production on my shoulders all the time. I had to reimagine the script because it wasn't written for someone like me. It was written for an, a young Irish Catholic white woman. So I had to get with the writer and totally reimagine the whole story, put it in a world that I understood in a body of a woman my age versus a 21-year-old. I think 
you know what? The energy is electrifying. That's why I said when I first saw you and I just, wow, I, I grounded myself with you and for this. It's amazing. It was all about the game at the Revolt Summit as the cast drops some tea about being back as the show is streaming on Paramount+. Plus. It feels inviting. It feels electric. I'm changing the game. Mm. Mama need this. Wendy Raquel Robinson, Adrian Ray, and Von Hubron led the cast as new players offer a modern-day examination of black culture through the lens of pro football, while keeping things real as they play the game. Never thought this was possible. I mean, team ownership! Woo! So for me, I'm having the time of my life. Hosea Sanchez told us the storylines this season will tackle issues like mental health. The biggest arc of Malik's uh, his season this year is you're going to get to see him dealing with a lot of trauma and a lot of things that a lot of our not only athletes but black men in general are dealing with. Robinson, who plays Tasha Mack, also talked about the boss ladies on set. I feel empowered. Our rap night was last night, and I stopped and I noted every single department head was not only black but was female. I said, I feel like it's a revolution right now because there's room for everybody. Her career gets put on ice, and Justin is rewarded. It was the 9 sixteenths of a second that changed the culture in Janet Jackson's career forever. Now FX and the New York Times are doing a deep dive of the infamous 2004 Super Bowl halftime show featuring Janet and Justin Timberlake. They were trying to diminish Janet's career. Malfunction, the undressing of Janet Jackson premieres on November 19th and also streams on FX on Hulu. It's no equality of punishment. All right, I want to bring in Bossips, Danny Canada, and Mr. Entertainment himself, Ty Cole, as well as Free-ish Media co-founder, Garrick Anthony. Welcome to you all. Thanks for joining us. So first up, we want to start with 50 Cent and Snoop. What are your guys' thoughts about 50 Cent hinting about developing a new show around Snoop Dogg's 1994 murder trial? I'd love me some Snoop Dogg. So I'm here for any kind of Snoop Dogg content that's out. You know, I think that that was such a really, you know, crazy time, especially with that murder case trial. And that's the one with Johnny Cochran, I believe, too. And, you know, there are still some unresolved things that we still don't know. So I'm down for it. I'm ready for Snoop Dogg to share his story. I am, too, especially if this turns out like Curtis wants it to on Stars. I think he's doing some great work over there at BMF. And Snoop is already on that show. So they already have that connection. But moreover, I just think that if 50 Cent and Stars could get on the same page, even despite his petty posting, I think they could really make some magic happen with the show. I'm kind of drugged out. I'm tired of the drug dealer storylines and the, you know, y'all pushing weight. Move. I'm just like, give me something else. Give me like some black people doing Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Some others. Right, right. <laughs> I want to switch gears a little bit, but still on the Snoop beat. What do you guys think about him saying that he now wants to own Death Row Records? Honestly, Death Row could use a bit of life. Uh, breathed back into it and who better to do it than Snoop you know this would be kind of a homecoming for him all right let's move on to Kelly Rowland and having to defend her son's police themed birthday party I asking you guys this why is this such a big deal 
I understand what people are saying. They're like, don't indoctrinate your children, you know, teach them the real deal about what's going on with police. We don't know what Kelly Rowland is teaching her son about police at all. All we know is that a seven-year-old wanted to have a police-themed birthday party, moreover, a Lego police-themed birthday party. And it's not an LAPD-themed party. It's not an NYPD party. It is literally Legos. So I feel like people are kind of making a mountain out of a molehill here. Let the woman throw her son a birthday party if she want to throw it. Like, if y'all leave this woman alone, she's already giving you her dirty laundry. Like, she is good. Leave her alone. Danny, Garrick, and Ty, thank you for being with us. I appreciate your thoughts. Straight ahead, one year after the SARS protests in Nigeria, we explore how things are today. And later, we continue with our stand-up series focusing on Black food security. That's all coming up. Welcome back to Revolt Black News Weekly. I'm special correspondent Naima Abdullahi. It's been more than a year since the hashtag NSARS ended up highlighting and really showing the world what was going on in Nigeria and Nigeria's demands for justice. This after security forces opened fire on demonstrators who were already demonstrating and protesting against police brutality. This brings us to the acronym SARS. What does it stand for? Special Anti-Robbery Squad. Civilians and protesters really started to hit the streets to protest against them after information started circulating about unjust killings and violence against civilians. The hashtag NSARS gained national momentum that then did not stop even after internet blackout. So this brings us to our conversation today. More than one year later, how much progress has been made in Nigeria and how can that progress be measured. Today we have a panel lined up for you to bring all different perspectives for this in-depth coverage of the diaspora, specifically Nigeria. We have West African correspondent Emmanuel Akinwutu, also with us podcast host and panelist for Grapevine TV, Uchechi Chinyere, and also joining us artist, musician, and choreographer Didi Emma. Thank you all for joining us for this conversation. Emmanuel, I want to start this conversation with you. You're currently in the motherland in Nigeria. From your vantage point and your experience of actually being in Nigeria right now, how are you measuring progress and what is your vantage point? Tell us about what's been going on more than a year since those protests erupted. Yeah, thanks so much um, for having me on. And it's a, it's a complicated question because on the one hand, you can say that some progress has been made in the fact that it was amongst the biggest protests that we've seen in Nigeria um, in my lifetime. Um, and it was really kind of a radicalizing and kind of galvanizing moment for a lot of people my age uh, and around my age. Um, you know, when, when I was going around the protests, there were so many people who were protesting for the first time, you know, who were kind of like, you know, we were waiting for this moment. We we're waiting for a time where people would wake up and, and rise against this sort of thing. So I felt like for a lot of people, the protest, the act of protesting with so many people their age against an issue that, that every, so many people could resonate with was such an important thing. And even though the protests were brutally clamped down, and even though many of the demands that the protesters had wasn't really satisfied, I think it was, you can say that there was still at the same time some progress in the sense that uh, it felt as though to some extent the political class had to sit up and take stock of what young Nigerians were saying. 
As an artist, I want to bring you in on this conversation because some of that momentum was done through um, artists who amplified the voices of what's happening in Nigeria. Burna Boy said, in order for Black lives to matter, Africa must matter. When you heard that um, on your timeline and you saw it happening, what did, what did that uh, quote really mean to you as an artist? Um, everybody likes everything else of ours. Hmm. You know what I mean? They like our music. They may like our food. They like our fashion. But when it comes to our fight, nobody ever wants to talk about it. And so to me, that meant that if you can love my music, then you, you have to love me and you have to care about what my home looks like. Um, I think Black Lives Matter had a lot to do with it as well. Um, you know, we got a chance as Africans, because we don't learn about each other. Like in African education, we don't learn about the Black plight. We don't learn about slavery. So for the first time, we got a chance to connect because we were, we were battling the same thing, which is innocent blood being shed and for what? And so I feel like as youth, as people, as an artist, as someone that our music has spread like wildfire, but our problems didn't until that moment. When we really look at the hashtag NSARS, uh, Uchechi, I want to bring you in on this. Um, that hashtag really helped facilitate an important conversation. Even in the middle of an internet blackout, which is sometimes what we always see in a lot of African countries when there is demonstration and revolution, the internet blackout didn't really silence what was really going on because that message continued. What more do you think needs to happen with the amplification of social media, a young generation getting involved in the movement? But tell us about some solution-based suggestions that you have, um, something that people can really take away with them. I definitely think that Nigeria needs to not allow this moment to pass them by. Um, one thing about the NSARS hashtag, it's been around since 2017, and I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize. It just came to a head during the pandemic, the way so many things did. Even when we talk about Black Lives Matter and how it had its global impact, it's essentially the effects of a pandemic that forced the world to stop and stay at home. And the same way that we were able to hear about BLM worldwide and uh, and SARS to be heard worldwide or the uh, fights for in the Caribbean to be heard worldwide. It was because we were all forced to listen and watch what was happening. A lot of the people that we were seeing or a lot of people that we were able to take note of um, were middle class or, you know, upper class because a lot of the people, I, I, you know, during the massacre I actually was in Nigeria. It's so difficult for so many Nigerians whose their main focus is like living off of what is the equivalent of a dollar. And so I think it, for Nigerians to recognize those who do have privilege, and I know that's very difficult as you stay in, in the country that is essentially um, takes everything away from you, but those who do have privilege to recognize the voiceless in their communities. How did that experience feel for you on a very human level? Because we can read the headlines, we see the updates, we see the trending topics, but you're saying, no, 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 I, I was actually there. Can you let us know what your experience was like? We got to the airport, the airport was completely shut down, uh, or everyone had run away, you know. Um, they had told us that no flights were going out. Um, we got a little bit of help, we're able to find a hotel. And as we were driving from the airport to the hotel, um, we had to drive through protesters. And I think that was one of the most difficult parts. I'm Nigerian, but at the same time, there was a fear because I knew that this was going to end well. And it was really uh, frightening to have to drive through that, knowing that um, 
they may not make it, we may not make it, this may turn into something completely ugly. Um, point stops were everywhere as we're driving through protesters. And it's funny that they talk about how like police were only at Lucky Gate because as we're driving past and we get past like the gates of the airport, I look behind and I see police tanks. I see like, you know, I see military driving in. Um, and later on, we hear the gunshots, we hear the noise from our, our hotel, and we were stuck in our hotel for five days. Nobody was allowed to leave because we were on 24-hour lockdown. The country was under a 24-hour 24 um, 24 curfew. My parents were stuck in the East. They couldn't get out. Um, it was essentially a Herculean effort to leave the country. And it's something that has stayed with me because I, as, as an Igbo woman, I should not be afraid to go home. But that experience has made it really uncomfortable to consider when I'll next go back. Even though I may be scared to go home, I'm landing on the soil. Are you mad? Like, I will be there at the end of the day. This fight is above us. God is in this fight. Because when that, when that blood of the innocent kids shed on that flag, those kids knew what they were doing. We know our culture. You're not supposed to spill blood of innocent on our flag. So now the ancestors are rising. Like, this is big now. It's bigger than us. Nigeria's revolting. They are. And there's nothing that they can do about it at this point. Emmanuel Uchechi Diddy, thank you so much. Hey there. Ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah. Or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before much for contributing to this conversation about African activism and police brutality in Nigeria. All of your inputs, all of your perspectives are much needed to move this conversation forward. Up next, organizers from the Love Fridge make sure everyone's eating and feeding us all the info on Black food security. It's another edition of Revolt's Stand Up 4 series presented by State Farm when Revolt Black News Weekly returns. Welcome back to Revolt Black News Weekly. We're turning our attention to helping those in need when it comes to food. Now this week, our stand-up series focuses on one program that is changing the lives of an entire community, one fridge at a time. Hi, I'm Velma. I'm an organizer with The Love Fridge. Hello, my name is Eric. I'm an organizer with The Love Fridge Chicago. The Love Free Chicago is a mutual aid network operating in the Chicagoland area, operating through food rescue with other mutual aid groups in the Chicagoland area. We offer access to resources in areas that are suffering from what we call food apartheid. Food apartheid 
hits uh, neighborhoods of color where they don't have access to the same resources as other neighborhoods. So what we do is facilitate the movement of resources from, from organizations, from food rescue missions, and from urban gardens around the Chicagoland area to sites that we have. We started the Love Bridge Chicago uh, in July of 2020, and it started because of the pandemic. One of our organizers saw that New York was doing a community fridge um, within the different boroughs, and he thought to bring some of his friends in um, to start one in Chicago. And here we are today, um, 33 fridges up. We really do work with the community and try to facilitate resources that the community needs. And we activate farmers markets where they will give us their surplus because by the time they go back to market, the food would have wilted or wouldn't be edible, but we can get that food to where it's needed immediately. And that's one of the skills that our group offers. So if you guys, or if you all want to start a fridge, feel free to email us at thelovefridgechicago at gmail.com. We can connect you to a bunch of fridges already in North America doing this work. If they're in your city, we can connect you. We are the community. We don't put ourselves above those that we're trying to help. And we don't believe that we have it all figured out. So we're always open to dialogue and to build. This is about building stronger bonds with those around us and working toward a sustainable future for all. important work and congratulations to Love Fridge co-founder and friend of the show Radius etc who's joined us in the past in these conversations congrats to him and all of the organization's growth and success that's going to do it for us I'm Ebony K Williams for Revolt Black News Weekly and the revolution that is shaking the foundation of popular culture stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada -ba -ba -ba. At participating McDonald's.